Welcome to the Highway Hi-Fi Podcast, where we bring you great songs by unknown artists and unknown songs by great artists. I'm Joe. And I'm Ryan. And you've reached the internet's finest hour for music. And always, we start with a little bit of music trivia. I'm going to start tonight with a, the non-audio quiz, and the quiz tonight is titled Craig Finnegan's Wake. <laughs> what I want you to do is I'm going to name you a nickname, and you tell me whether that nickname has ever been in a Craig Finn song with either Lifter Polar or Hold Steady. Ooh, okay. All right. Okay. There we go. I've got, a, I've got a few of them here. I haven't decided when to stop yet. Okay. Let's start with Good Dr. Tooth. Yes, that's been in a song. It is. It was in Nice Nice. Yep. Okay. The next one is going to be Fiddler on the Roof. Yeah, I would say that's had to be in a song. Same song. Yeah, yeah. good one. Okay, good, good. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> next one is 7-Eleven. They don't have 7-Elevens in Minnesota. I'm going to say no. You're right. That's a fake. Hold on. Let me mark it. <laughs> keeping score. I'm, I'm keeping score now. We're being serious. Perfect. All right, the next one is Sal Paradise. Uh, yes. It is. It's on a song called Stuck Between Stations. Okay, that's a good song. Very good, yeah, definitely. The next one is called No Doze. No. No, you're right. Man, you're so much better at these Like things. a... You got all those Guided by Voices ones. Lifter Puller Savant. <laughs> <laughs> okay, got another one. How about... Saul Westerberg. <laughs> sure, why not? It is not. Oh. <laughs> what, what is a Saul Westerberg? I don't know. I just made it up. <laughs> character from one of your songs. It's, he sang in The Replacements for a while. Okay. The next one is Circle K. It's, it's got to be. If 7-Eleven wasn't, it's got to be. It is not. Oh, I made that up too. Man. Yes. Gotcha. How about New Coke? That sounds like it should be. It is not. Oh. I made that up. The next one is going to be One Hour Photo. Yes, that definitely is. Yes, that's a good one. It's in the Swish. <laughs> um, great, great song. The next one is Nightclub Dwight. <laughs> I'm going to say that is one. Yes. <laughs> It is. Okay. In a song called The The Flex and the Buff Result. I think that's that one was a lifter puller one. Okay. David Byrne out. I hope not. No. It it is not. I that's a total fake. Okay. Okay. <laughs> it's pretty good pretty good fake though. <laughs> Alright. Nina Simone. Uh, I think he says Andre Simone. Nina Simone. Andre Simone. I'm gonna say no. It is one, oh. right in the line, right before the Andre Simone. Okay, thing, okay. Say, yeah, I couldn't yeah. remember how that went. Yeah, it's also in the swish. Uh, when he when he puts them in songs, he puts them in a lot for one song. Yeah, okay. packs them in. The next... Dense with yeah. stupid references. <laughs> the next one is St. Paul Saint. I would guess so. Nope. No. That's me. That's yeah, the baseball team? With... Yeah, yeah, tricking you with geography. <laughs> okay, then we've got Mocha Gino. I, yes, it has to be. Nope, nope, nope. Mo- oh, that's me. man. 
All right, and we are going to finish up with... Oh, actually, I've got two more. Okay. Two more. First one is 612 Bloody Mary. Yes, that is. It is, yep. That's in a song called 212, Margarita. And the last one is the easiest one of the bunch. Drop Dead Fred. I would guess yes. It is. Okay. Song called Song called Knuckles. Also my favorite uh, movie. Also, it was also the other the other nickname for that guy was Right Said Fred, I think. Okay, okay. Yeah. Wow, great quiz. A lot of a lot of it was fun. fun. Uh, <laughs> I gotta listen to them. I haven't listened to them in a while. Kind of fun stuff. Well, uh, I got a special, very special quiz for you tonight, Joe. This is uh, we're recording this right around Valentine's Day. And so I've got a, a sweet little quiz that I'm calling Sweethearts of the Rodeo. I'm going to play you an audio clip. And this audio clip is two snippets of songs played on top of each other. And the snippets of songs represent solo artists who at one time were romantically entangled. And they may still be. I don't know. So your job is to just identify the uh, rock and roll couple. Are you ready? Yes. All right. Track one. Track two. Track four. First, when I came to town, they brought me bottles plenty. Now that I've settled down, they bring me the bottles empty. I fiddle all day, I fill it for five all day. I'll die my pet. Track five. Track six. Ooh, what'd you make of that? I feel pretty confident about naming them. I think for the most part. Okay, good. If you uh, if you get one, you should be able to figure out who the couple is. So Yeah, right. All right. And so we will come back at the end of the show and tell you the answer to the audio trivia. But for now, it's time to get into the uh, the meat to the potatoes of the show. Turntable talk. Everybody's talking at me. I don't hear a word they're saying. Only the echoes of my mind. All right, I appreciate the meat intro. Today we are going to be talking about Scott Walker, who is known for using meat as a percussion instrument. We're going to kind of go into him mostly because of the song you played last week, which was amazing, from his, from the Night Flight album by the Walker Brothers in 1978. That sort of got me, got us talking a little bit about the evolution of Scott Walker from superstar in England in the late 60s into just some somebody who's known as being a recluse and a perfectionist now, though he's actually neither of those things. 
typically, what we don't really try to go too far into biographies unless it's like really whacked out people like Tiny Tim and Scott Walker is certainly not that. Um, so I'm not going to go much into his biography. Probably, for the most part, people who are listening to this are going to know enough about him. What I wanted to kind of focus on was his evolution specifically from that stardom of the late 60s into what he's doing now, which a lot of people find incredibly hard to get into. It's sort of obtuse sound that people cannot crack. But it's actually, from from now listening to those albums over and over and over again with headphones on, they're... They're actually more melodic than you might think. They're a little scary at first, but they are incredibly melodic. And there's a fine line that goes, or a line that goes between all the way from Scott 4 through almost all of his albums. Um, all of his albums of original material, at least, mm-hmm. from Scott 4 all the way up to Bish Bosh. And it's really cool. And I made a, a bunch of clips that kind of go from album to album where I take a track. I have a, a few seconds seconds of a track. And it goes all the way through, and it's it sounds very similar in that you can hear sort of the same kind of background information and noise going on, and you can tell that it's all from the head of the same of the same fella. He has a reputation of being, as I mentioned, both a recluse and a perfectionist, and it appears like he has these long lapses in music and in releases, but that's really not actually accurate very much at all. Although I think being a recluse is something he sort of wants. To kind of keep going, even though he laughs it off when people say that. He's actually been incredibly active. Like, after Scott 4, during the early 70s, that was sort of his period when he wasn't really active because he was putting out horrible albums or mediocre albums of just mostly, almost all covers. I don't think he had any original material in there from the, in the 70s, basically to make some money because he was drinking all his money, money away. He didn't have anything. But then in... 1978, as we talked about last week, the Walker Brothers got back together. They made three albums. And the last one they made was called Night Flights. And it was made knowing that the record company was folding. So they just sort of went all out. And Scott told the other two guys that what they should do is just finally make exactly what they want. Just don't even pay attention to anything else. Don't worry about commercialism. Don't worry about the people turning it down, the record company not taking it, just make exactly what you want. And the four songs that he contributed were fantastic. And there is an underpinning between beneath those songs that actually kind of is a carryover from Scott Four, and you can now even hear it in Bish Bosh. There's something going on underneath. It's sort of an ominous tone that you can just hear throughout, despite going back and forth between him having a sense of humor and being incredibly dark and serious. He has, he kind of does it all but there's there's a sound that is in all of it and it's kind of a kind of a strange thing to hear in the background once you kind of pull it out but from night flights on from 1978 after that there was a little bit of a lull but it wasn't really all that long um he ended up doing climate of hunter next which wasn't too far out that one was in 1984 so he had scott four his first album of all original material in 1969 Night Flights was four original songs in 78, so a brief period there of not having original material, but he did have four albums of cover music in between there. Then Climate of Hunter in 84, so not too far away from that. Then he didn't release an album of original material from 84 until 95. That's a huge break. Um, He does not ever like doing anything where somebody can't tell, where somebody won't allow him to have his own sound and just kind of let him do what he wants. And I don't think he was able to find that type of record company or that type of producer 
during that entire stretch. So music was coming out. He was writing some songs that would eventually be on tilt throughout that entire period, but he refused to work with people who wouldn't let him make and create the sounds in his head onto an album and kind of pull it out. So he just sort of refused, which is pretty cool. Uh, he he did that, um, and then he eventually came out with Tilt in 1995. That was on Drag City. When it came out, it seemed like it was just incredible incredibly dark and weird and kind of an avant-garde album and almost to the point of being pretentious. But now that I have listened to it many, many times, it's it's actually not bad. And compared with the next two, the next two big ones that people consider, the Drift and Bish Bosh, it's got a lot of melodies inside of it if you do some digging. What he's been doing is seem to be sort of stripping away sounds that people typically consider with rock and roll and pop music in general and replacing them with starker, more unsettling sounds, but they're still, it's still the same kind of symphonic noise. It's just made by different instruments. It's also intentionally off kilter. And he continues that with Tilt. He goes into uh, the trilogy that he claims, he, he claims that these are a trilogy, Tilt, Drift, and Bishbosh. But in between Tilt from 95 and Drift in 2006 seems like a long period of time, but he had an album on a compilation called Plague Songs in 1996 that is going to be in this clip. The song is called Darkness. Um, he did the soundtrack to Pola X in 99, which is fantastic. And it has people, um, it has Bill Callahan from Smog on it, it has Thurston Moore on it. It's really great. And then he did some other songs on other soundtracks. He did one for Nick Cave. He did one for a James Bond movie. These aren't great songs, but he was still active. He was doing stuff and just kind of playing around with his own voice. And then he made Drift in 2006. And Bishbosh came out not very long after that. And that's what he claims is his trilogy, although I think Pola X fits right in there too. The interesting thing, I think, about his production and how he puts these albums together is and he's been very consistent with this since Tilt and I think he tried was trying to do it in Climate of Hunter where he has musicians come in one at a time he never tells them what the final sound is supposed to be he just gives them their part and they play it um, and he has musicians that he trusts he's been working with them since the 80s and they play their part they have no idea what it's going to sound like and then he sort of pulls it all together which creates this disjointed almost eerie hard to digest sound and it's exactly what he wants. It's great. He's known as being kind of a perfectionist. That's why people sort of say it takes him so long to get albums out. Not really the case. When he brings these musicians in, he lets them kind of do a lot of their own stuff in there. They know the sounds. He trusts them. They trust him. They have an idea of what he's looking for. And he lets them kind of play around with the songs that are in his head. And uh, sometimes they make it better, and he's thrilled with that. Um, and sometimes they don't, and he kind of has them redo it. But it's, it's not that he's a perfectionist in any way. He has sounds in his head. He wants them to come out uh, like most musicians. But he has a strange way of doing it, and the sounds are different from sounds that most people would have ever heard. At least in a, in a certain way. But that sort of musicianship was something I talked about when we did that 33 and a third episode with Brian Eno. He does something very similar. Or used to do something very similar. They even almost worked together on an album. So Brian Eno, Daniel Lanois uh, were supposed to work with Scott Walker on an album, but Scott Walker disliked Daniel Lanois so much that he couldn't do it. And he didn't really like the idea of working with someone who was also really creative and might kind of taint his sound in some way that wouldn't be what he wanted. Now, as far as his lyrics, they have 
changed an incredible amount. Like, the, he used to kind of tell stories with his songs. Like, in Scott 4, you can hear specific stories um, and narrations, and they're about people, there are characters in them. But they start, and there's a middle, and there's an end. And now it's just what he does is he has words that create a feeling when they're combined with the sound, and overall it creates the message that he's conveying, whether it is specifically a political message like... Um, he has a song about the World Trade Center. He has a song about uh, Mussolini and Mussolini's lover, Clara. You can tell that this is what it's about, but he does it in such a strange way with the lyrics. It's really hard to kind of pick apart what's going on, but you get the feeling that you know what's going on with all of it. When he is writing a song or when he's creating a song, I don't know if he does a whole lot of writing, what he does is he'll come up with some words. They'll just sort of come out of him. And he'll create a sound based on those words. And then if it's like five words, he'll just stop. And it might be six months later before he even goes anywhere further with that song. He doesn't ever try to force it. He just lets them kind of fall from him in a way. So it's not like where uh, Nick Cave would go into his office and write songs for eight hours a day, or try to. When words come out, he, that will sort of dictate the sound that has been going on in his head, and he'll just kind of make that all work. And it might take a year for a song to come out. I think with him, he's maybe one of the best artists I know that uses their instrument or their voice as an instrument. Like, how he uses his voice is truly like different sorts of instruments. Like, he puts it in the right place for the song. And he has an amazing voice, but he doesn't all use his baritone crooning voice, especially in those later albums. He he finds how they fit. I think about that Rosary song. I think it's at the end of Tilt. It's just fits so perfect with that that jarring guitar and mm-hmm. it's it's just those two two things kind of like an interplay and and they couldn't fit together any better even though he's not using his normal or his past crooning you know sweet dark brooding voice it's very different but he's so he's good incredibly at that. self-conscious about recording his voice too like he, he said he can walk around the house and just start singing and he loves it he's great but then when he comes in to record he waits until all the music has been recorded He comes in all by himself, and he does his vocals in either one or two takes, and he leaves. That's it. He doesn't doesn't Hmm. do anything else. And then when he's finished with the album, it might take six months to kind of mix it and put it all together. He listens to it one time, and he never listens to it again. So he's never heard his albums more than the one time once they were finally mixed. He's kind of like the the anti-prince who only listens to his own music. (laughs) (laughs) But he's incredibly interesting, and I kind of... Like a lot of people have uh, show parallels between him and David Bowie during that documentary. That's kind of a lot of what they're talking about. But I don't necessarily see that Mm -hmm. as much as somebody like like a Nick Cave, who we were talking about earlier, where Nick Cave was doing these story songs for a long time in his career. And then suddenly the last two albums that he and the Bad Seeds put out, he and Warren Ellis, instead of doing that, they made kind of soundscapes like a Scott Walker, but not anywhere near as dark and foreboding or as dystopian. But they would make these soundscapes where there weren't stories. There were words put in that ideally, when it all works really well, they create a feeling that is itself a story and a language all its own. And that's what he's been doing since Tilt especially, but I think it started in Scott 4. And that's what the the clips I have here that I'll play in a second are kind of hopefully going to show that line from one to the other. Well, and I think with him, like, we, we talked a lot about, is there any artist that took a turn in their career like that who who was, you know, the Walker Brothers were up there with the Beatles in popularity at one point. You know, they were, they were huge, huge stars. And, I mean, he seemed to always shy away from that fame. 
But at the same time, like, is there anybody who could reach that level of fame and then come back and totally redefine themselves and use that kind of paranoia and anxiety about fame and the music industry mm-hmm. to, I mean, just, there's just not stories like that in music. No, uh, we couldn't not. think of anybody. There are people who changed their sounds, uh, like Tom Waits sort of changed, he changed his sound pretty drastically in the late seventies, but it's. He was never a superstar on the cover of, like, Teen Beat or anything like that. Um, It just wasn't the case. So he changed his sound, but he had more leeway to do so because people weren't overall really listening to his albums all that much. So he could kind of play around and do what he wanted. I was talking earlier about him being a recluse. Like, he's got this, he has this reputation of being just kind of all on his own, out in his castle, nobody knows where he is. But it's just not the case at all. I think at this point, or starting from Climate of Hunter at least, when he had that reputation, he kind of took advantage of it because the very first line in Climate of Hunter is, this is how you disappear. And it just kind of goes away like that. Uh, He definitely does that throughout his songs, and I think it's intentional. So he does a lot of songs about escaping where you are, escaping some horrible, horrible planet that may not even exist sometimes, it seems like. And then he does a lot of really violent political songs about atrocities. So there's a lot of that, too. Climate of Hunter, I think, is especially... It's interesting how it's set up because it's really, really perfectly placed for a record, at least, because the, there are four songs on each side, and they sort of mirror each other, with even with instrumentation. If you go side one, track one, side two, track one, they kind of play off of each other. Um, they use a lot of the same people on them and a lot of the same specific instruments that aren't featured on other songs. What's um What's the deal with all the weird... Like, the using the meat as a percussion? I know he used a kind of a strange donkey braying in one song yeah. and trash cans banging. Does he ever talk about why he does that sort of thing? He is looking for sounds that he has not heard. So it's not just him coming up with that. It's like him and the musicians that he trusts, like the guy who does the percussion, who has to do all of that crap. He will come up with a sound, like he will be talking with, with him for a long time about the, the exact type of sound they're looking for. And that guy actually came up with this big box. I don't know if you remember from the documentary, they built a five by five box and they put cinder blocks inside of it and then they hid it with a cinder block to make this very specific sound. They both thought of it together. They want to kind of come up with sounds that make you as a listener work harder on what's going on and trying to kind of figure out what he's trying to accomplish. I think you, he wants the listener to be as deliberate and work as hard as he did in making the sounds themselves. And I think that goes in with all those weird instruments he's making, like pulling in a pig and having some guy punch it. There's so much humor in all of these too. People, honestly, a lot of people just consider this music of his to be incredibly pretentious and it's not, you know, they sort of roll their eyes. But if you go into it, it's hilarious. He does like Donald Duck impersonations. I think it's somebody else doing that. And he'll do fart noises throughout songs and just to really keep you off guard. So as soon as you think you're really into this heavy, deep music and you've got your headphones blasting, all of a sudden there are fart noises coming out. I cannot stress enough how much that I've been listening to these albums and enjoying them. I was sort of a little nervous about this going in because I really like these albums, but they're not albums that I've ever had the ability to just kind of sit down and listen to one, one after the other after the other. Why don't I go ahead and actually, because that's kind of what I'm getting getting through here, those clips that I have. It's going to be a few clips, but they're very short. I'm just going to go ahead and play them. Once I get through these, I'll let you know what each one is. Uh, there are a lot of them, but they are very short, and I think they all kind of go together as as if it's its own song. So here you go. It's the signs as we see them There's no thresholds at all 
There's no vows to be broken as we rise. The gods are gone, the air is thick. You cannot risk the fat, fat mama king. It cuts out your likeness in blood circulations, suspended beneath the release. And that one cracks like these do, and these do, just like this over here, this over here, and out on threadbare little earth. Affects the genitals, sniff to press the Manhattan's in the Duma. Those were clips from Scott Walker's career of original material on albums. This covers a lot. There was a bunch of stuff in there, but the clips were anywhere from five to fifteen seconds, uh, so they weren't very long. But you should hear in the background or somewhere in there. There's this ominous background noise, like almost nightmarish, <laughs> coming out. But it kind of <laughs> evolves throughout the whole thing. This is the thread that he has coming from 1969 until Bishbosh came out a few years ago. And so, the first track was from Scott Four. Uh, it's a song called "Get Behind Me." The second one was from Night Flights, and that's a song called Fat Mama Kick. And that will extend into the climate of Hunter Song, which is called Track 5. And then in Tilt, uh, there's a song uh, using the song Cockfighter. Same kind, of, same kind of thing. And then the next two songs are ones that are lesser known. One is from that compilation I was mentioning called Plague Songs. It's just he had one song in there. Uh, then after that, it's Pola X from 1999, which was a soundtrack. Uh, that song is called Time is Out of Joint. And then from Drift, there's a song, that one, there's a song called Hand Me Ups. And then Bishbosh, it was called, uh, the song is called Cor de Blah. Those were the clips. Of all of those albums, if I were to go back now after sifting through these for weeks, there were two that I think would be far and away my favorites now that I wouldn't have thought that before I started doing this. And that would be um, Bishbosh is fantastic. It is melodic. There are a lot of songs in there that are just great songs. Just sometimes they stretch for 10, 15, 18 minutes, and there are many songs inside of them that you just, they're buried in there, and you just have to kind of work to find them. But once you do, it's um, its like an epiphany almost. And then the other one is Pola X, which is mostly instrumentals, but it's just beautiful. It's uh, much more subdued. It's not quite as ominous as the others, but it is still very bleak and dark, but it fits really well with the score of a, with the score of a movie. For sure. You know, when, when we were watching the documentary, we talked about this a little bit before, is like towards the end of the documentary, he mentions that by Scott Four, he'd written all his own material. He'd left Jacques Brel and everything else behind and kind of turned to himself. And it was such a, a failure, maybe the first like true failure he had experienced, you know. But he said, had that not been a failure, he would have got to where he is so much faster. You know, he would have, I guess, felt more comfortable. And I guess that was always his, his one of his issues is like leaving behind that commercialism and, and people telling him what to do and who he should be until he could find his own place. And I mean, I think he's still probably searching for that. 
Yeah, I think it's I think it's fantastic now that he has found that there are so many of these indie labels. Like right now, he's he's been on Four AD for the last three albums <clears throat> since Pola X, I think, and they just kind of let him do what he wants. So it's perfect for what he does. That if anybody came in there and tried to do any kind of controlling of the sound or change it in any way, he would just stop doing it. Like he just wouldn't he wouldn't make it anymore and then we would all be or at least the few of us that like it would be left out but could you imagine if all those years he was doing the crappy cover stuff or the crappy walker brothers if he was doing this sort of stuff like where he would be right now he would have had bish bosh out in like 1975 <laughs> and then from there what kind of evolution would there have been even brian eno at some point which you mentioned last during the last episode said that what well, was it something about music hasn't really gotten any more interesting than it did in his night flight song or the the night flight song right something like the, that the one that you played that at that point nothing's got nothing has gone beyond what he did there in 78 ever all right well i think it's time to uh listen to a few songs I'm going to start off with uh, the first song this week, or this episode. This is a song called David Bowie, I Love You Since I Was Six, by a band called the Brian Jonestown Massacre. Your eyes. 
right, that was the Brian Jonestown Massacre with David Bowie, I Love You Since I Was Six. This has been one of my favorite songs for a long time. The Brian Jonestown Massacre were a band in the middle 90s who I think was pretty untouchable as far as what they were doing, what kind of with 60 revival stuff. This, this song came from an album called Take It From The Man. It was one of three awesome records that was released in 1996. They, the band released three records. They were all kind of throwback records to the 60s. Thank God for Mental Illness, which was the one directly after that, was kind of like a folky country one. Their Satanic Majesty's Second Request was kind of like their psychedelic one. And this one, take it from, or the, the album that this song came from, Take It From The Man, was kind of like their garage R&B kind of British rock. All three of them were fantastic. They they said during the time the 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 main guy Anton Newcomb, he was homeless, so he would record one album during the day and then drive over to a different studio and record a different album at night and just <laughs> kind of sleep in between studios and that's kind of how he lived for several months and he'd always do it on a shoestring budget. As far as the song itself, I don't you know, have a lot of information about it. It's got that great accordion that kind of ties it all together and gives it kind of a, a mystical sound. His singing is kind of somewhere between like overconfident and totally strained. He's 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 an interesting guy. Uh, they had that documentary. I, I forget what it was called. Dig maybe, which was mm-hmm. kind of like their rise and fall compared to the Dandy Warhols. Just rise. Yeah, he's he's an interesting dude. Kind of a weird dude. The album first came out on Bop Records, 1996. I have a reissue uh, by some UK label. I think it was just called A Records. Yeah, it was just called A Records. They reissued it in 2010. It's a double-colored vinyl. Really cool release. So that's my song. I love that song a lot. I think my favorite by theirs is called The Ballad of Jim Jones. That's on one of those albums, too, that you mentioned. That's on that Thank Goodness for Mental Illness, which is my second favorite by them. I mean, all three of those records are are like any one band would be happy to put out any one of those records in, in any year. And they put out three great records in one year. It's kind of crazy. They're still making good records. They're not making great mm-hmm. ones anymore, mm-hmm. but they're still worth listening to. Okay. My first song is going to be by a guy named John Cassandra. And the song is called Down Home, Up, Down Home Ups, Good Whiskey and Bad Women. So here you go. <laughs> Tell him to 
Cassandra with his song Down Home, Down Home Ups, Good Whiskey and Bad Women, and it was released in 1972 on the Respect label, which is a subsidiary of Stax. John Cassandra was known a little bit for writing, mostly a song writer. I don't have a ton of information about him. I just really love the song. It's a nice, simple, not nice and simple, it's a nice funk song that sounds a lot like a Joe Tech song. I think it's a fantastic song. My next song, I'm just going to go ahead and play it. It is by a band called Slipstream, and the song is called Riverside.
Okay, that was a band called Slipstream. The song was called Riverside, and it's from their album Slipstream. And if it sounded a little bit like Spaceman 3 or Spiritualize, there's a reason for that. The band was formed in 1994 by a guy named Mark Rafoy, who played in Spiritualize on their first few albums. It was him and a couple other guys, and they put out a couple albums. This was the only one that's probably really worth listening to that I've heard. It's a good album. It's on Che Records. I have a, the copy I have is on white vinyl. Good, solid album, very consistent. Um, it sounds, again, a lot like a 90s indie rock band that was very influenced by Spiritualize and Spaceman 3, for, with good reason. All right. And for my last song, we're going to take a little bit of a departure from that. My last song is Jerry Jeff Walker, and the name of the song is About Her Eyes. So that was About Her Eyes by Jerry Jeff Walker. Um, that came out in 1969 on an album called Five Years Gone on Atco. This album is kind of an interesting album. He was far from the kind of uh, Lukenbach, Texas country guy that he would become, making a bunch of kind of rollicking country records. And he was kind of getting away from the, the more singer-songwriter 
Mr. Bojangles phase. Right in the middle, he went to Nashville and made kind of like a folk record. Uh, it definitely had country aspects and it had singer-songwriter aspects. And he re-recorded Mr. Bojangles for it, uh, for the record label. But he used a bunch of the studio musicians that Bob Dylan had worked with, and you know, the Nashville Cats type guy, and made this just really, really good record. And the crown jewel of it, in my opinion, is this song, which is just a sweet romantic kind of sad song you know somebody thinking about think about his lady but uh it's it, it's just just kind of a very very pretty song and that record five years gone is definitely worth seeking if you're into that type of music it's you got to kind of put away what you know about jerry jeff walker to listen to it at times it sounds kind of like neil diamond it's 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 very strange but the um, his backing band is, is just awesome, and there's some great like steel guitar type stuff. Kind of a simple, sweet song, but one of my favorites, and I think it's something Joe played for me a long time ago, and uh, it's still been one of my favorites. I think that's one of the, the loveliest songs ever made, and it was on my it was on the mix I made for for my wedding. Even I just genuinely think that song is is absolutely beautiful. So I'm glad you played it. Because I would have eventually. I'm kind of, yeah, I kind of, I was going to say, I think that was a song that I can't believe we hadn't played. What are we, about 18 episodes in? Yeah, this will be number 18. Yeah, I'm glad, I'm glad we finally got around to it. One of us was bound to do it. You ready for some trivia answers? Let's, let's finish off that trivia. Okay, let me go ahead and play it one more time for the, our uh, folks who are playing at home. Remember, these are our famous uh, couples uh, not singing together. Two separate songs played on top of each other. And your job is to identify the two couples. So here we go. Or identify the the couple. So here we go. Track one. Track two. Track four. First, when I came to town, they brought me bottles plenty. Now that I've settled down, they bring me the bottles empty. I fiddle on a day, I fill it for Fido Day. Track five. And track six. So who are our lovebirds here, Joe? The first song, or songs, are by Yoko Ono and her husband, John Lennon. Absolutely. Do you know either of the songs? That's not, this is for bonus points. It's re- It would be really hard to do that. I didn't get the songs for any of these, though I, I know a lot of them. I don't I don't know the song titles for those. Uh, it was the John Lennon song, Remember, off Plastic Ono Band. Mm-hmm. 
and the uh, Yoko song, Don't Worry, Kyoko. Okay, that's the one I would have gotten of the two, honestly, first. The next one, I think, is John and Alice Coltrane. Absolutely, yep. Uh, Journey to Satcha Harardin or whatever it is. There you go, And, uh, yep. (laughs) And John with Giant Steps. Great stuff. Number three, Lou Reed and Laurie Anderson. Right. And I think, I'm not sure if that was Oh Superman or not, but I, and I can't, I could not place the Lou Reed song. I know it really well, but I couldn't think of what it was. Yeah, it was Oh Superman, and uh, the Lou Reed song was I Want to Boogie With You. Oh, okay, okay, good one. I love that song. Okay, the next one, I think, is Richard and Linda Thompson. Very good, yep. Okay. Um, The Linda song is Katie Cruel, which has been covered numerous times by all sorts of people. And the Richard uh, Thompson song is The Ghost of You Walks, which is a really nice song. The next one I had was Betty Davis and Miles Davis. That's right. All right. Uh, that was Miles Davis is Bitches Brew and Betty Davis F-U-N-K. <laughs> so great. Uh, okay. The last one, this was the one that I was uh, most concerned with. I think it's Thurston Moore and Kim Gordon. Uh, that is incorrect. It is Beyonce and Jay-Z. No, I'm just joking. It's, it's Thurston Moore and Kim Gordon. <laughs> <laughs> Very oh, good. Oh, man. Uh, Thurston Moore song, Psychic Hearts, and a Kim Gord song that she recently put out called Murdered Out. Okay. So you uh, you knocked that one out of the park. We both did well on trivia today. It was kind of fun to do that because I tried to kind of blend them so they sound like they could have been one song to varying degrees of success. As always, please remember to go out and buy some records, support musicians, um, support the the things that you love. We uh, wouldn't do this if we didn't care a lot about music. And, and, you know, you should go buy yourself a Scott Walker record. And find us on Facebook. Pretty easy to search for us. Where the, we should be the only people that have the name Highway Hi-Fi Podcast. Twitter as well. And we have a Facebook, or we have a website, uh, Google Sites. Just search Highway Hi-Fi Podcast and you'll find whatever you need about us. Perfect. And if you can, uh, if you are listening to this and enjoying it in any way, please leave us a rating on iTunes so that more people will see it and listen to it. All right. And then next episode is going to be kind of uh, a new thing that we're trying. We're going to have a guest turntable talk. And that guest is going to be my wife. And she's been researching a specific topic. I won't won't spoil it for you, but it's going to be pretty good, I think. I think you all will enjoy it. All right, we hope you all have a wonderful week, and we'll catch you next time. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. 
Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any fantasy points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. 